through the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which is a document about 500 years old uh, that we, along with many other faithful churches, believe is uh, an accurate summary of what God teaches us uh, in his word. And so this afternoon, uh, we'll be reading uh, for our confessional reading from Lord's Day 18 and 19. As I read the question and answers, please uh, read along in your hearts and in your minds uh, that this is our confession. What do you confess when you say he ascended into heaven? That Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Is Christ then not with us until the end of the world as he promised us? Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth. But with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other if his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is? Not at all, for his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. So it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on and nevertheless is within his human nature and remains personally united with it. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends his spirit as a counter-pledge, by whose power we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. Finally, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. This is our confession, summarizing what God has revealed to us in his word about the ascension of Jesus Christ and his sitting at the right hand of God and his returning to judge the living and the dead, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, which we'll sing together later. Brothers and sisters, Have you ever heard of the singer Janet Jackson? Until this week, I don't think that I had. But I found out this past week that apparently she got married in 1984 and then divorced just a year later in 1985. And then in 1986, she released a song complaining all about her short marriage. And that song was called, What Have You Done For Me Lately? In that song... She complains that her husband used to always take her out dancing all the time. But in their short little marriage, things changed. And then his feet never left the couch. She complained that he used to always bring her out for fancy dinners. But then during their short marriage, things changed. And if she didn't cook dinner, she figures they probably would have starved. 
And so she asked in the song, What have you done for me lately? She felt like she was doing all the work. And if her husband did still love her, as he said that he did, well, then he certainly didn't show it into the day-to-day life. And overall, I think we can see this is a pretty bad way to approach a relationship, as evidenced by the, the, the divorce shortly after. Uh, but I think there's just a kernel of truth that we can see in this statement, isn't there? Overall, uh, we can see that if someone loves you a lot, then there should be evidence of that. And not just evidence in the past, but evidence in the present too, right? That just makes sense. And that's relevant to our topic for this evening. When you think for a minute about God's love for his people, when you think about God's love for you, what events tend to spring to mind? What actions of God come to the the forefront of your mind? Mostly things done way in the past, right? You might think of the Old Testament. You might think of God calling Abraham. You might think of God leading his people out of Egypt with the Exodus, this huge event. You might think of how God defended his people. He fought for his people. He protected his people and would call to his people when they wandered away from him. Or maybe your mind's more like mine, and you jump right to the New Testament. Still an event very long time ago. You can see especially God's love for his people, God's love for you, in the life of Christ. And so much more than that, in the death of Christ. We can think back to how the Son of God came down in the flesh and lived a life of obedience. More than that, he lived a life of great suffering and agony. And he did that for you and for me. Eventually, he showed he had the greatest possible love for you and for me. At least he had that love 2,000 years ago, right? As we read in the New Testament, greater love has no one than this, than that he would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus did exactly that. He had the greatest love for you and me. But that, brothers and sisters, was nearly 2,000 years ago. And we have to wonder, if Jesus had this immense love for us, love that would motivate him to willingly joyfully die in our place. I think it's fair to ask, where is that love now? How does it manifest itself today? We don't ask this question in a disrespectful way like Janet Jackson did of her ex-husband. We ask it in a serious way. Jesus died for us, but now it can feel like there's just been silence for 2,000 years. And that doesn't seem right. But we can ask, how has Jesus been showing his love lately? And we can see in the scriptures in many, many different ways. As I studied this this past week, I was just blown away. I can't cover every way in just one sermon. But the Bible doesn't just emphasize Jesus' death and resurrection 2,000 years ago. Of course, it does emphasize that. That's why it's emphasized in our lives and in our preaching. But the Bible also shows so clearly Christ's ongoing love and care for you and for me. And so today we'll consider what has Jesus done for me lately? As I studied this, I realized, like I said, that we can't cover it all, but we'll just focus on three important things that were mentioned in the Heidelberg Catechism that we just read together. We'll see that Jesus is advocating for you still today, that he's reigning for you, and thirdly, that he's returning for you. And so first of all, Jesus, for you today, is advocating for you. And this is really good news. As we know, as we heard this morning, Jesus came to save us from our sins. Our sins had separated us from God. Jesus came to 
purify us from our sins and bring us back to God. Our transgressions of God's law drove a huge wedge between us and the Lord and left us deserving to be cast away from his presence for all eternity. But by God's grace, Jesus removed the sins of everyone who believes in him. And now we who love and trust in him and believe his promises were declared innocent and righteous because of all his work. And as we just read together in John, we have this familiar call to live out our new nature in Christ. By God's grace, if we believe in Jesus, we are holy. Now we're called to live our lives as holy. Now we're free from our sin, and more and more, we hate the sin that previously separated us from God. The sin that very nearly led to your and my eternal death. The sin that actually did lead to the brutal death of our best friend, of Jesus Christ on the cross. We hate that sin today. But the thing is, today, as much as we hate our sin, as much as we flee from it, so often we still do sin. Every day, again, we do the things we don't want to do. We do the sin that we hate. And that's what John is addressing in 1 John 2, verse 1, that we just read together. He says, My little children, the reason he wrote this, is so that you may not sin. And he uh, recognizes that we still do sin. He tells us, actually, if you look just a few verses before our reading, in chapter 1, verse 8, that actually, if we say that we don't sin, then we're deceived. Then we're lying. We're fooling ourselves. And I really appreciate how the Catechism says this in Lord's Day 23. Listen to our confession in Lord's Day 23. My conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. I ask you this evening, is that your confession? Is that my confession? It is based on God's word, but so often this shocking statement, it just doesn't ring true in our hearts, does it? But I think you'll see, the more that you meditate on God's law, the more you read his word, the more you focus on his commands and what they mean, the more we ask God for his spirit to open up our eyes, the more we'll see this is so true. I have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, everyone. I've never kept any of them, and am still inclined to break them. We haven't kept one commandment as we should. And that is a heavy thought. Our conscience accuses us of this more and more as it's tuned towards God's word. Worse than that, God's word tells us that it's not just our conscience that accuses us. I wonder if you can think of another accuser in scripture. In Revelation 12 verse 10, uh, there, there God describes Satan as the deceiver of the world who accuses us day and night before God. Satan sees our sins and he accuses us day and night before our almighty God. Isn't that a terrifying thought? Thankfully, John is so realistic in his letter. As soon as he urges us to never sin, to flee from our sin and lead, uh, live as God's children, 
uh, because of our new life in Christ. He gives us an incredible comfort for when we do sin. And he comforts us not just with the past work of Jesus 2,000 years ago on the cross. That's what we often go to, and we can, and we should. But, but John goes somewhere else. He goes to the present work of Jesus Christ for you and for me. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. John says there, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and he's already said, we do. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And this is so important, brothers and sisters. Because often when we sin, we think of God being what? We think of God being angry with us, being displeased with us, and rightfully so, we think of that. God often shows in his, world, in his word that he's displeased with the sins of his people. And at one point, sin is described as grieving the Holy Spirit living within us. But that doesn't mean that God is far from us when we're sin. Remember our sermon from earlier today. Jesus knew we were sinners when he called us, didn't he? He drew near to sinners and tax collectors. He surrounded them with him. He called them to him. He forgave them and then called them to holiness. And so that doesn't mean we can't go to Jesus in our sin. In fact, when we fall into sin, I, I think at least for myself, when I know I've just committed a sin, that's when I feel reluctant to go to Jesus. That's when I should go to Jesus. It's when I need help. It's when I need forgiveness. It's when I need to confess and ask for forgiveness and for strength to go on. But often, in our guilt and shame, we, we don't want to go. But it's not as though Jesus, in a burst of love, came to die 2,000 years ago for sinners. But now he just waits and hopes that we sinful people make it the rest of the way to heaven ourselves. In our sin, we fear Jesus is angry with us. We fear he's far away. But in this passage, brothers and sisters, we get an incredible picture of Christ's heart for sinners and sufferers today as well. When you sin against God, when you grieve the Holy Spirit, Jesus doesn't leave you. He doesn't turn away from you. Instead, we see here, he advocates for you. This is legal language. An advocate, you have to imagine, is like a lawyer. A lawyer is someone who represents you before a judge. Someone who goes before you into court on your behalf and he argues your case for you. And when we fall into sin again and again, we don't get a picture of an angry, a frustrated, a disappointed Savior who turns away from us. Instead, for us who believe in Jesus Christ, the one who died for sinners, when we still today through weakness fall into sin, we get a picture of Jesus up in heaven above who leaps to our defense. What a Savior we have. And what's amazing is that this advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, he doesn't come before God like we do. When we sin, we can only come before God humbly, asking for forgiveness, asking for mercy. But we see Jesus in this passage, our advocate, he comes with a different argument. He comes with a different case. He comes with a different approach. When the devil accuses us of sin before God the Father day and night, Jesus enters our plea on our behalf. And what is the plea that he enters for you and for me? It can only be guilty on 
Every church. Satan is right. We do still sin. And our sin still does lead to death. Not just death in this life, but eternal death. And Jesus says, we're guilty. But Jesus doesn't beg for mercy for us. He doesn't plead for a light sentence for us. He knows pleading guilty means eternal damnation. Instead, Jesus simply says the devil is right. He'll admit that we committed that sin that the devil is accusing us of. But then Jesus argues that the accuser is leaving out one fundamental piece of evidence. Jesus says, I, Jesus Christ the righteous, already paid that debt myself. I bled for that sin you're accusing them of. I suffered for it. I took the weight of that condemnation myself. It's done. Look again at our text. John 1 uh, verse 9, or right before our text rather. John 1 verse 9. It says there, if we confess our sins, he that is God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When Jesus comes before the Father as our advocate, he doesn't come pleading for mercy. He comes pleading for justice. Jesus says on your behalf and mine, Father, I paid this debt in full. And Father, if you are just and you are, you cannot hold this sin against my people. You cannot demand payment twice for the same debt unless you become unjust. And often I think we get a picture of Jesus leaping to our defense, trying to get a favorable ruling from a reluctant judge, don't we? Well, that's not the picture we should have either. Because rather, Jesus goes before this perfectly holy and just and kind and good Father. And when Jesus goes to the Father to advocate for you when you sinned, or me when I sinned, the Father is eager to declare that we are innocent. He's eager to confirm the good news that our debt has been paid in full on the cross. In fact, with Jesus Christ the righteous as our advocate, the Father doesn't just say, you're innocent of that sin, you're free to go. Instead, God says, you are righteous. You are free to come. As we heard earlier, we can come before God's throne in confidence with Christ's righteousness as our own. I love how Dane Ortland says this in Gentle and Lowly. He says, When we choose to sin, we forsake our true identity as a child of God. We invite misery into our lives. We displease our Heavenly Father. We are called to mature into deeper levels of personal holiness as we walk with the Lord. But when we don't, when we choose to sin, though we forsake our true identity, our Savior doesn't forsake us. These are the very moments when his heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusations, astonishes the angels, and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of all our messiness. So what has Jesus done for you lately? He's defended you before the Father, first of all. 
He silenced the accuser on your behalf when you've sinned. So probably today he's done that, hasn't he? He's taken his wonderful work of salvation 2,000 years ago for all who believe. He's applied it for you personally before the Father today. Because Jesus loved you back then, of course he did. But he loved you today too. And so he advocates for you. But he isn't just advocating for you. He's doing so much more. We see in point two, he's also reigning for you. And so after Jesus' work on earth was done, he ascended up into heaven. And in fact, we read together from Hebrews in our call to worship that he passed through the heavens. So the picture that we get there is that Jesus went all the way through heaven and planted himself right at the end, right beside God the Father. And there, we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he sat down, because that's language is throughout the New Testament. And often we think of this as a picture of Jesus sitting down, a picture of him finishing his work, right? And that's true in a sense. There's an element of that in Jesus sitting down. As our high priest, Jesus offered himself as our final sacrifice. It's finished. And so he went, and he can now sit down. But more than that, this isn't just a passive sitting. It's not like Jesus is now retired, and he's sitting in a lazy boy chair, putting his feet up while he waits for us to do the rest. Jesus isn't resting sitting in heaven. He's working. He's sitting on a throne. In this case, sitting also means working. You can think of another example. Did you know that you can look up the schedule for parliament meetings? If you do look up their schedule, you'll find a schedule of when parliament is sitting. It's kind of strange, isn't it? But by sitting, it means that they're working. They're ruling. Likewise, you can think of a king. Where does a king often rule from? He goes and he sits on his throne. And Jesus is in heaven right now, and he's sitting. He's ruling. He's ruling over the church. He's ruling over the whole world. But more than that, he's ruling over you. He's ruling over me. Isn't that a remarkable thought? This is described for us so beautifully in Ephesians chapter 4. There we get a picture of Jesus as our victorious king. He came down to earth. He conquered sin and guilt and fear and death and the devil. And more than that, he acquired all the benefits of his life and death and resurrection for us. And now he's ascended. He's gone right up to his throne. And from there, Paul describes Jesus, our victorious king, as sitting on the throne. And what's he doing from there? He's pouring out the spoils of war. He's pouring out gifts on each individual, each and every one of his people. Paul says in verse 7 of Ephesians 4, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says in Psalm 68, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. From there, it's clear that Paul's emphasis is that Christ died for the whole church. He purchased each and every one of us with his blood. And now as our great king, he's pouring out specific gifts for you and for me. As the primary gift that he gives is his own self, actually. He abides with each and every one of his people. He lives with us by his Holy Spirit. And as Paul goes on to explain in Ephesians 4, with the Spirit, he equips us all with countless other gifts. He equips every member, 
every body part, as he calls us. He equips us all with specific gifts to use. And what we should be doing, or what we can see, is that Christ gives each part of the body, so that, as Paul says, it might work properly with its gift, so that the, whole, the body, the whole church, each of us, will grow into maturity and build itself up in love. And so what we should be doing is basking in Jesus' gifts and riches and constantly asking and inquiring and searching for what particular gifts our king is equipping each of us with. It's so easy for us to think, I don't have any particular gift. That's not the picture we get here. Jesus rules each of us. And unless you're arguing that Jesus is being stingy with his gifts in your case, it's simply not true. He equips us all as parts of his body so that the whole body might build itself up in love. And so each of us, we should watch out. The last thing we would want is to be the one person who buried up their talent and didn't use it for the benefit of the rest of the church and for God's glory. We ought to milk that talent for all that it's worth. We read in Ephesians 4 that Christ just equips us each personally for our good and for his glory. And Paul emphasizes, especially in Ephesians 4, for the good of the church. In Ephesians 4, Paul actually describes how actively Jesus is doing this work, and it blows me away. Because Jesus feels so far away sometimes. Like his ruling as king over the universe, like he can't be thinking about us in Sardis that much. He can't be thinking of each of us personally that much. But Ephesians 4 blows that out of the water. The picture we get is of Jesus himself equipping each and every single person. It says there that he, he picks every leader himself. He gives them the Holy Spirit. He equips them for the task and gives them the task of equipping the rest of the saints as well. He's working through them too. And so what has Jesus done for you lately again? Well, he's ruling for you right now. And not just in a general sense. He's ruling you personally by his word and spirit. And with this great king caring for us, we should see what Paul mentions throughout the rest of the chapter and also what John mentions throughout our reading. We should see growth for ourselves and for our family and for our church family up into maturity. Growth in faith and growth in holiness and growth in Christ-likeness. And if we don't see this growth, we can simply go to this great, victorious, and generous king. And we can ask for his wisdom and his Holy Spirit. He says he won't withhold them. We can ask to see the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, more and more our lives. And so we should ask for these gifts. And once he pours out these gifts, we should bask in them and thank him for them. Because we have a king who's ruling each of us. He's defending us and preserving us and equipping us by pouring out gifts on us. Equipping us for his service, our new life as a member of his kingdom. And so Jesus is advocating for us when we sin and he's ruling over us each personally every day. And finally we see point number three. He's also returning for us. Now this is a big one. This is a big topic. This great advocate and king we've been talking about He is coming back as a judge. And this can be a terrifying thought. We heard about last week from Reverend Jansen, the judge of the universe is coming. God himself will judge you and me. And this judge is 100% holy and 100% just. 
His eyes, we are told, are too pure to look upon evil. God is coming to examine and judge every one of us. And he's going to judge us for every deed that we've done, we're told in Scripture. Matthew 12, verse 36 says, On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. What a horrifying thought. The terrifying thing is that this holy judge knows every word, every careless thought, every careless deed, every thought that's crossed our mind, and he will take them all into account. Again, we heard just last week about how holy this God is. He demands righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees. Lustful looks he counts with adultery. Anger he counts with murder. And we read in Revelation 20 that the books will be opened. We'll be judged according to our deeds as recorded in God's books. And those who are wicked will be cast away from God forever to the place of unquenchable fire, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a terrifying thought that is. Imagine for a second this great judge coming from heaven above. We read in Revelation 6 what what this will be like. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, will hide themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Brothers and sisters, imagine uh, sisters, imagine the terror of that day. Imagine this judge coming. You can feel it. Imagine this judge coming, and then you look up, and you see who that coming judge is. And it's Jesus Christ. What a relief. You see him, you see the Lion of Judah looking like a lamb who was slain for you. You see Jesus Christ with his nail-scarred hands, proving that he's the very same one who loved you 2,000 years ago, and who loves you dearly today. You realize he's the one who's been ruling over you, equipping you, pouring out gifts on you, caring for you. And when you sinned, when you break his heart, advocating for you all this time, as we read in 1 John 2, verse 28 together, as long as we're with Christ, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. As our catechism says so beautifully, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake. The judgment the wicked will fear is the judgment that Jesus himself feared in the Garden of Gethsemane. The judgment that God himself, that Jesus himself rather, bore in your place and mine. And what Jesus is doing right now, brothers and sisters, is preparing to return as judge. 
the kind and compassionate judge who already allowed himself to be judged for you and for me. And we get an amazing glimpse of what this preparation looks out like for Jesus today. We can see John 14, for example. There Jesus says to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Truly, with Christ as our Savior, with Christ as our Advocate, we have nothing to fear of the coming judgment. Instead, we wait eagerly, our judge from heaven, the one who is coming to bring us to a place he has prepared for us. Whenever I think of John 14, I think of whenever I'm having guests over to my house. And you know when you have a friend coming or some family coming you haven't seen for a long time and you're really excited for them to get there? What do you do? You start to prepare. You start to plan. You plan where you're going to go, what you're going to see, what food you're going to eat. You get their bed already even way in advance because you can't wait for them to get there. And we see in John 14 that Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is with God the Father. And he's preparing a place for you and for me. He's preparing a place for all those who love him and trust in him because he first loved us. And he still does love us. He prepares a place for you and for me today. Not just 2,000 years ago. We get another picture of what Jesus is doing today in 2 Timothy 4. At this point, when he's writing this letter, Paul is just about to die. And previously, well, this should be terrifying. Paul has written at great length about this judgment to come. And previously, Paul has called himself the chief of sinners, while writing to Timothy. But yet, Paul trusts in Jesus Christ. And he knows what Christ has been doing for him by his grace. And so Paul... He's not scared of the judgment. Instead, he says in 2 Timothy 4, The time of my departure has come. Now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That is what Christ is doing for us today in preparation of the judgment. While Jesus was working through Paul on earth, while he's working through us and his church on earth, he's also working for Paul and for us in heaven. We read here he has a crown prepared for Paul, and one prepared for you and for me as well. Not just some generic one-size-fits-all crown. I don't think that's the picture we get here. But he has a crown prepared, laid up with your name on it and with mine. One that's just our size. And so finally, I ask you once again, what has Jesus done for you lately? I hope we know better now. So much. He's done so much for us. He's ruling over us. He's preparing a place for us, preparing a crown for us. And even when we sin, he's leaping to our defense and advocating for us. Christ is showing his love for us every day. Let's pray that we might show our love for him every day too. Not just resting on what our church has done for Jesus or what we've done for Jesus in the past. 
But let's consider every day, what have I done for Jesus lately? How can I show my ongoing, ever-growing love for the one who loved me when I was a sinner and still loves me now as a sinner? Amen.